This week on Grape Encounters Radio. I'd thought about this name for a while. To me, tightrope, it really reinforces, I guess, one of the things I primarily look for in wine, which is balance. Again, having kind of a food background and really wanting to celebrate that food-wine pairing opportunity, to me, balance is so essential to really great wines. And then, also importantly, the opposite would be falling off of the tightrope, and that would be a vintage where we would not make tightrope. And I'm fully prepared to not make a wine. Each one of the offerings needs to re-qualify each and every year. That is really special. Crush me some ice, skin me a peach, save the fuzz for my pillow. And it is time for your weekly grape encounter, and you are listening to a very humbled David Wilson. I am the David Wilson who, for eight years, has warned you about fake Pinot. You know, Pinot Noir that people love just because it's called Pinot Noir. And I've said this many times on the show that Pinot is not my go-to grape. And it's mostly because after the movie Sideways came out, there was just so much bad Pinot out there. And it just became a struggle to separate the wheat from the shaft. And today I have been humbled as we continue our journey across the Willamette Valley. And we are now at a wonderful place called Tendril Wine Cellars. And we are with winemaker Tony Rinders. And welcome, Tony, to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. You probably have no idea what I'm talking about, about being humbled by you. But we just went through an amazing tasting and you just rocked my world. It wasn't just my world that got rocked, though. The fellow who has helped arrange this several-week-long tour of Oregon wines is with me, Aaron Bartels. And Aaron, you have that look of amazement in your eye as well. Very much so. Having grown up here and having lived off of Pinot Noir, this has been an eye-opener for me, for sure. So Aaron is with Southern Glazers of Oregon, which is one of the really, really big wine distributors. They do an amazing job, and we do business with them down south. They represent so many brands, you know, so you get to taste a lot of Pinot. And we actually came out to experience the wines also of Panther Creek Cellars, which, Tony, you make as well, which are just crazy off the charts and have actually set some records, right? Yeah, no, it's been fantastic. I've been involved with Panther Creek since the 2013 vintage, and it's been a wonderful project for me to be involved in. And the wines have really become very acclaimed since you've been there. You know, I know you're a humble guy, so you're probably going to take zero credit for that. But it's got to be exciting to come into an operation like that and then just see it grow and grow and grow and blossom and become a well-known brand. Yeah, they just celebrated their 30th anniversary. And so... For a brand, especially in a young region such as the Willamette Valley in Oregon, to have had that type of longevity is really, uh, there's just a handful of wineries that have accomplished that. And so, as happens with a lot of brands over time, you know, they go through their different phases. And so, we like to refer to this as Panther Creek 2.0 and pretty excited about where things are at right now and just really being able to put my signature, I guess, on the brand and really put it all together so that it hopefully makes sense to a lot of folks out there in addition to myself. Well, you're associated with a a number of brands, and you also have a label called Child's Play, which we also got a chance to taste, and, you know, really delicious and approachable. 
approachable wines, both from the standpoint of the way the wines are created, but also price points on the wines, you know, very approachable as well. And then you do a lot of consulting work. Yeah, I, I have a, a small group of consulting clients. It's something that I really wanted to do. Just a little bit of history about me. I spent about uh, 20 years or so in Oregon, in the Willamette Valley. And I've also had the opportunity. I started working in the wine industry down in California, spent some time up in Washington as well. So Oregon, Washington, Pacific Northwest is really my focus. And I, I did that very intentionally. Prior to starting Tendril and ultimately Child's Play, I spent 10 years as the head winemaker for a little winery called Domain Serene and really took that brand from very small to being a fairly prominent brand and learned a lot and really decided based on what I had experienced there, what I wanted to do for my next step. So it was very important for me creatively and as a winemaker to be able to work with a few select clients to start a couple of brands for myself and to apply a lot of the opinions that I'd formed along the way. Good grief. Do you sleep? You don't sleep, do you? <laughs> sleep is overrated. My kids are growing fast. I, I do have to admit that. And I'll tell you what, I've got a ton of support at home to be able to do these things. But it may sound a bit unbelievable, but in actual fact, I feel that I've been able to strike up a really wonderful balance. Even though I'm involved with several things, several different aspects of the business, I feel as though I've got better balance in my life. And so to me, that allows me also to make uh, even more interesting and compelling wines. It's kind of like why it's easier to carry two suits cases than one. <laughs> yeah, there's right. balance. Yeah. The thing that I think is the most fascinating about you and what you're doing and really where I want to focus the show today is your determination to give your wines their own separate identity and differentiate yourself from the pack. Because, And it's not just about Pinot, it's about wine in general and the fact that we have millions of wines to choose from as consumers and sometimes the sameness is so annoying and so hard to even make a decision because it's a half a dozen of one and six of the other. And just a few weeks ago, I was out judging the Sunset International Wine Competition. And when they lay eight or 10 or 12 glasses in front of you of the same varietal made by different producers, and you go from one glass to the next to the next and sometimes can't tell really the difference between one or the other and it's not just about your palate or palate fatigue. It's about that desire on the part of winemakers to sort of hit that bar of what that particular varietal is, quote unquote, supposed to taste like. And what I think was most impressive about tasting your wines was how you made sure each one had its own personality, that there was no confusion over what you were tasting. And then even the way you named them was so appropriate to the wine. So I want you to spend some time addressing this issue of sameness versus having distinctive personalities for your wine. And Aaron, would you agree yes. that this was maybe one of the best examples of a lineup of wines that complemented one another, that obviously were from the same family, that obviously were made by the same winemaker, but they had their own identities unto themselves? Yeah, it was definitely a family portrait that we looked at today. And yeah, that's exactly right. You know, each individual was there. But you could tell that they were all related in some way or another. And that was thanks to what he does. And the problem is a lot of wines just get so washed out. There's so little ability to differentiate because they're applying the same techniques to everything, you know, and they're 
getting a lot of the grapes from some of the same places and yeah. just trying to exactly. make, make too many wines, make too many ranges. But. Right, well, let's jump into this for a couple of minutes yeah. and then we'll have to take a break and then we'll come back. So lay out your philosophy, Tony, because I really think what you're doing is fascinating. Well, yes. And thank you for uh, bringing up that point and giving me the opportunity to talk a little bit about kind of where I've come from and, and where I'm at right now and how I've evolved as a winemaker. So over about the last almost 20 years now, you know, I've been based primarily in Oregon as my focus as a winemaker. And I'm also a wine consumer as well. I I love wine. I buy wine. I drink wine. And so I'm always looking for something stimulating and compelling, I guess, is the best term as far as the wines that I'm most interested in. And so when I set out to do the wine brands for myself, for Tendril, and then ultimately Child's Play, I was really very driven by trying to do something a little bit different, if not a lot different than what other folks were doing. And, you know, if you look at Pinot Noir as the example, which is the grape variety that I'm primarily focused on. It's the one that's most planted here in the Willamette Valley. I also work with some Chardonnay, and I have a little bit of Cabernet, actually, that I get from a vineyard that I own a small stake in over on the east side of the state. But point being, with Pinot Noir, the common model or approach is to do site-based offerings, which most people refer to as single vineyard wines. And so I personally love making single vineyard wines, but in actual fact, we live in a place here in the Willamette Valley that we have vintages, and the vintage concept, I guess, is very much alive and real. And so we have. Let me stop you there for a second because Mm -hmm. we know that in Europe, vintage is critically important. When you're in a state like California, where the weather is far more consistent, Mm -hmm. meaning drought years and years in a row. (laughs) Well, there you go. You worry a little bit less about vintage, but when you get up in Oregon, vintage becomes critical. It's more like what you deal with in Europe, is it not? Without a doubt. It's not to say that California does not have vintages and, you know, you should really kind of break it up into subsets. California is an awfully big state with a lot of different growing regions. But absolutely, here in the Willamette Valley, we share those same tendencies with Burgundy in that we have a very distinct vintage variation, and it's both a, an opportunity and a challenge. And so what I wanted to do when I set up Tendril was to actually depart from the standard single vineyard model. Most wineries that make Pinot Noir, I would say on average, have anywhere from probably six to up to ten single vineyard offerings. Yeah, and, I've, and I've seen more. That, well, yeah. absolutely, there are more. I want you to hold that thought, okay, because we got to take a commercial break because otherwise we can't be on the air. Okay. And plus, the commercials are great on our show. But anyway, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We are currently at Tendril Wine Cellars talking to genius winemaker Tony Reinders and, of course, here with Aaron Bartels, who is with Southern Glazers and kind enough to take us around. And we're also talking about Panther, which is another brand that you produce. And if you are in the Willamette Valley and you don't come out here, it's a little bit of a trek. But if you don't come out here and experience these wines, you have missed, you know, one of the very best experiences that you can have here. I really, really, truly mean that. And more than that, when you do a wine tasting here, you're going to sit down and Tony is going to spend a lot of time talking about the wines and his philosophies. And as far as I'm concerned, your approach to the wine business and winemaking and wine consumption is so spot on and off the beaten path. And I really appreciate it very much. And just amazing wines across the board, everything you're doing. So we'll come back and talk about how that happens right here on Grape Encounters. Your special edition of Grape Encounters will continue from Northwest Oregon in just a moment. Perhaps you should pour one of Oregon's world-class Pinots to get you into a perfect frame of mind. I was too far from home. I gotta get 
get back to orbit Too far to roll Trying to get back to orbit Back with Grape Encounters Radio And we are once again in the Willamette Valley in Oregon And gosh, I am so pleased to be where I am right now Which is at Tendril Wine Cellars Talking about the wines made by winemaker Tony Reinders. He makes uh, wines for Panther Creek. Tendril is his brand, also has a child's play and works on other brands. And we were just talking, Tony, about why it is so important for you to differentiate your wines from, you know, other wines and to also within your family of wines to make sure that there is a very clear and separate identity. And I think you were just talking about how important vineyard select Wines are, especially here in Oregon, but sometimes that backfires, right? Absolutely. That's a fact that certainly is not lost by me. And in actual fact, became kind of a central tenet or primary focus for me as a winemaker taking the next step, starting my own brands. You know, I think we could all agree that, you know, there's a virtual sea of wine out in the world. And, you know, most would agree that the level of the sea is rising. That's global warming. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> because you can now um, grow grapes in places you couldn't before. <laughs> well, yeah, some would argue that here in the Willamette Valley, that argument is appropriate. But with that said, and for me as well, being a appreciator or a consumer of wine, purchaser of wine, you know, I'm trying to navigate as to what point of view do I want to apply to, to Tendril, you know, stepping back in time when I started this brand. And so... Well, first, why Tendril? Why the name? So Tendril is actually the name we chose was really to honor the grapevine. I was looking for a one-word name that really highlighted the primary focus, the aspect that I think is the most important to making wine, which is really focused on the grape tendril, so which is a part of the plant. In actual fact, it's the stem of the grapevine as you move up the plant without the berries. And so the tendrils actually latch onto the trellis and pull the grapevine ever higher. And to me, you know, it is very visual. It's kind of a really wonderful tie-in and kind of loops everything together. That it's I, kind of I, the alien creature part of the vine. Yeah, it's very cool looking. Actually, to look at our labels, we kind of reined in our label designer. So some of the earlier iterations that he had were pretty crazy, pretty tendril heavy, shall we say. Anyhow, so that was really the idea as far as choosing tendril. It was available as well. We were able to trademark it, also very important these days. But also, I guess most importantly for me, as I set out to do tendril, I started out with just one wine. I made one Pinot Noir. This was back in 2008, just a few hundred cases of wine. I was pretty happy with the result, but over time wanted to sort of add to it. And so it took me about five years to fully complete, I guess, my thought with regards to what I was attempting to do with Tendril. And then at a certain point in time, a light bulb went off. And I realized that what I was building was something that really was a function of some of my earliest work experiences, which was working in the restaurant industry. And so I used to cook and really enjoyed it. And it was something that I really liked. I think I was pretty good at. And I realized great, that... Great winemakers are great cooks, by the way. Well, absolutely. That's always and, the case. And I'd look to wines that I most appreciate from friends of mine, uh, fellow winemakers, and they all like to cook, you know? And so they're ones that are food friendly. What I really wanted to do or what I, I wound up doing was focusing on that uh, food wine relationship. And so for Tendril, for example, I've built in the lineup a range of wines, a, a very diverse range of offerings. The Pinot Noirs, there's actually five Pinot Noirs that amount to what I like to refer to as a five course meal of Pinot Noir. So starting with Does that a. mean that when I sit down and have a meal with your wines, I have to buy five bottles? Well, the beautiful thing is that each one of the offerings is, you know, independently, as Aaron had mentioned, is a family member in and of itself. So it could be five independent meals or a five-course meal. Certainly, I would love you to do the five-course meal experience. Aaron, how many bottles would you open of his wine? 
I would do all five. You would do all five. It's the best diet program in the world. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you skip the meal completely. The no, 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 no. These wines pair amazingly with a lot of different things. So, and I think because each are so individual that they would be very fun to play with different foods, different little snacks and appetizers to see which one worked and which one emphasized. And I think it's not just tendril, right? It's a, the Panther Creek wines as well. Absolutely. You know, Panther Creek, I mean, the history of that brand going back 30 years was very squarely on the single vineyard offering model. And so I've worked very hard to, I guess, reload the uh, quiver, if you will, with vineyards that are really distinctive and that offer enough range and can provide really great wines in a given vintage. In contrast, though, with Tendril, what I wanted to do was to build the set of offerings to be more focused on the individual offering than the vineyard itself, which is a little bit contrary or a bit of a maverick, which I consider myself. In actual fact, my state vineyard in the Willamette Valley is called Maverick. But, I don't understand uh, why I haven't been shot or tarred and feathered by now for some of the things that I've said, but mm. you know, you heard me at the beginning of the show talk about the way that I taunt people who are Pinot fans, or maybe I just taunt the wines because I get so tired of there being so many low quality Pinots mm. out there. That must be hard for you to have to live in that world where there are a lot of really crummy Pinots being made and then the really great Pinots are over here. You know, you got to sift through all that. Where, where do you fit? You know, in actual or fact... maybe I, you don't even worry about it, that. Well, I'm aware of it and I try and put a positive spin on most things and so I actually look at it as an opportunity. And so, as we were discussing earlier, most people's first experiences with Pinot Noir are a little lower priced wines or often very low priced uh, wines and in actual fact most of those have other grape varieties blended into them. And yeah, talk about that for a second because that's so interesting. Well, it depends on where you're actually making the wine or from what region you're purchasing your wines. But in California, for example, the varietal laws are such that if a label says a particular grape variety like Pinot Noir, you have to have at least 75% of that grape variety, which means there's room for 25% of other. And with Pinot Noir in particular, that makes a radically different wine. And here in Oregon, as in contrast, our laws actually require us to have 90% of the grape variety be of a particular varietal. But in actual fact, in the Willamette Valley, very few people are blending anything other than Pinot Noir. And so I put on my labels single varietal to really reinforce the fact that all of my wines, including the Panther Creek wines, are all 100% Pinot Noir. And, you know, whole cluster, the whole approach to making wine is something that uh, myself as a winemaker, I've come to really only in the last five or six years and, and come to start to develop a relationship with. It's, it's one of those things that doesn't work with every vineyard site, but when it does work, it can really, how really do you, How do you know it's going to work? Because that's a big gamble, isn't it? Not? It's a huge gamble. And, you know, it's one of those things where I take some of my inspiration from fellow winemakers whose wines that I've liked and some folks who have been working with Whole Cluster for a number of years. I mean, you just have to take that leap of faith. And, you know, if it doesn't work, it really means that it wouldn't be a standalone offering. But, yeah, the search continues for those sites that it's really the most appropriate with. And, you know, I would never go with all of my wines as Whole Cluster. I think it can be too impactful in not necessarily a positive way, but I will always mess around with it in some years more than others. All right, we got to take a quick break here, but I hope that that notion has sunk in with everybody, that when you buy an Oregon Pinot, it is... At least 90%. At least but, 90%. most would be yeah. pushing 100%, if not 100%. Yeah, so. so wines from other places that say Pinot could be as low as 75%. But, That's a huge differentiation, but, I tell you. Absolutely huge. All right, we're going to take a quick break just for a moment, so stay with us. We're going to be back coming to you from Tendril Wine Cellars in the Willamette Valley of Oregon. We're talking to Tony Rinders. He is the winemaker extraordinaire 
extraordinaire here. Also, the winemaker at Panther Creek Cellars, another great label that you should be looking for. And there are other things that his name is connected with. What I always suggest is just Google him. You'll find him, and you'll find all the things he's doing. And also, he's now become my dear friend and really great wine educator, Aaron Bartels. And by the way, you are one really, really well-educated fellow. What level are you as a psalm? The Wine and Spirits Education Trust Advanced Level 3 with distinction. That means that you're really smart. I'm a super geek, and I drive my wife crazy. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I think she's a super beer geek, right? She is. She makes beer for Rogue, and she is just a brilliant beer taster, writes for Beer Connoisseur Magazine, and has a far better palate than I ever could. Okay, there. Now, no matter what you do for the next week, you just earned points with your wife. We're going to be, we'll be back with Grape Encounters in just a second. Stay with us. This special Grape Encounters visit to the Willamette Valley will continue in a couple of minutes, so don't go anywhere. And now, Grape Encounters with David Wilson continues. Like a bottle of red wine, I'll warm you up. Like a bottle of wine, I'll make you feel so fine, if you'll be mine. All right, back with Grape Encounters Radio, and I am sitting outside in this beautiful wilderness that surrounds Tendril Wine Cellars, and so happy to have... Hey, that's not real. <laughs> Thanks for that. That would be Tony Reinders, the winemaker here. And Aaron Bartels is with us from Southern Glazers. Used to be Southern Wines and Spirits. I mean, I have a tough time with the Glazers part. We've changed our name a thousand times. Uh, okay. Well, I, you know. Still Southern Wines and Spirits to me, but it's Southern. he is a wine genius with the company. He helped organize this trip and also has been my chauffeur, and it's been so fantastic. You don't need to peel grapes in the future, though. Thank you so much, by the way. I'm happy we haven't hit any other cars, and I haven't killed you. Thanks to you, and thanks to Southern for really providing a lot of, you know, just connecting us with this industry out here. It's been fantastic. All right, Tony, back to you. We were talking about the single vineyard designation and the fact that most people do it, but the differentiation between those can be very blurred. Is it some of the time, most of the time, all of the time? Well, that indeed is the million-dollar question. For me, personally— I cannot pay you a million bucks for the answer. (laughs) Well, I'll I'll take five ninety-five. All right, go Uh, ahead. I think it gets blurred more often than I'm comfortable with. And so that's why when I started Tendril, I wanted to put together some offerings that I chose fanciful names for the offerings so that I had some— Let's talk about those names because does this irritate you when you go to a wine retailer— and the name of the wine is so not what's in that bottle, and it just irritates me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like they're trying to be cute, but they're also throwing you off because you have certain expectations based on the name. You open the bottle, and it's nothing like what you read on the bottle. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you can, for me at least, I can tell when there's some thought that's been put into the choosing of the name or that whole process. And I had five years to assemble the individual offerings in my lineup for Tendril, and so I had a lot of time to think. And so I put a lot of thought into the names. I have, uh, for example, my first course, Red Pinot Noir, I call Extrovert. It's actually, I release my wine sequentially, so it's the first one that I release in a given vintage as well. Wait, when I tasted that wine, the funny thing was, and I said this to you at the time we tasted it, it's a wine 
mind that just says, hey, look at me. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. they smell me. It begs for attention. Yeah. Right. And exactly. So I think that it's relatable. So what I really wanted was for people who are fans of Tendril to be able to have an expectation of each one of the offerings. And I wanted the names to really reinforce that. I do a single vineyard offering in a given year, but it's a rotational approach. What I really focus on is the wine of the vintage coming from just one particular vineyard for that year. And so in the five years that I've done a single vineyard wine, I think we've chosen three different vineyards. And then the next in the lineup in the progression in the five-course meal would be Tightrope, which is the name I've chosen for my reserve bottling. And then I do a very small production of a 100% whole cluster wine well, wait, called Sino. Okay, we're jumping ahead again. Yep. Please explain the name Tightrope because sure. your explanation was just brilliant. Yeah. So again, I'd thought about this name for a while. To me, Tightrope, it really reinforces, I guess, one of the things I primarily look for in wine, which is balance. And, and uh, again, having kind of a food background and really wanting to celebrate that food wine pairing opportunity, to me, balance is so essential to really great wines. And then also importantly, the corollary to that or the opposite would be falling off of the tightrope. That's where my mind goes. And that would be a vintage where we would not make tightrope. And I'm fully prepared to not make a wine. Each one of the offerings needs to requalify for their position in the lineup each and every year. That is really special. And then finishing off with the red wines, C-Note is 100% whole cluster red Pinot Noir. So very much using that uh, kind of old world approach to Pinot Noir and again, it very well balanced the, the whole clusteriness, if you will, of the wine, I think is incredibly well integrated, which is critical to that wine making it to its own individual bottle. I want to say sincerely, that is definitely one of the finest Pinots I have ever put in my mouth. Absolutely one of the finest. It, it really even defies description. It is such a perfect wine. In every single respect, the balance, the flavor, the nose, I just was blown away by that wine. And the others as well, but that yeah. one, obviously... C-Note is one of those wines that you could honestly put down for a decade and just watch it grow up. I mean, it's got such a longevity ahead of it because there's so much structure there. My chosen name, C-Note, C for whole clusters is part of the reason some people find the musical association appropriate. There's also kind of the uh, you know old school terminology for a $100 bill. So it is a $100 retail Pinot Noir, so it's definitely a, a special occasion wine. How exciting is it to make a wine like this and go out and put your thief in the barrel and taste a wine like this, and you know you've got a Grand Slam home run. You knew this wine was brilliant. Without a doubt. I mean, the thing is, uh, to me, the real where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, is when folks come out for tastings, we're open by appointment, and folks come out for our very intimate, seated tasting experience, which you know typically takes about an hour and a half, where I'm usually the one doing the tastings. There's just a, a real palpable response, and people purchase the wine. And to me, if that was not the case, then obviously, you know, we would not be succeeding with the goal there. Okay, but We have just a couple minutes left, so let's talk about the very interesting thing that you do in the presentation of these wines, the order of the wines. Mm -hmm. The grand finale is really a stunner, but there's something very unusual about that. Well, yeah. So uh, a number of years ago, I was at a tasting of, from a particular Burgundy producer, and they tasted their red Pinot Noirs first, and then they finished up with Chardonnay. I thought that was just incredible. I thought that was like one of the coolest things I'd ever seen in my life, because I would have not thought that the Chardonnay would taste really great after a lineup of pretty substantial red wines. And so I've adopted that as an approach for our tasting. So we taste through our progression, starting with the extrovert, the first course red Pinot Noir, all the way up to the Cena. Then we'll taste our Chardonnay in between is the proverbial seventh inning stretch. And then uh, we finish with a wine that I alluded to here earlier that I'll talk about now, which is a 
a white wine that I make from Pinot Noir, barrel fermented, single vineyard Pinot Noir that I make from white wine or from uh, Pinot Noir, and uh, I call it Pretender. And the reason I've chosen the name is name. that yeah. it's well, and it it really is a red grape Pinot Noir, pretending to be a white wine. If the wine was alive and could actually speak, it would tell you that it thinks it's a red wine, and uh, everything about it. Uh, thinks it's a red wine other than the fact that there's no color. It is truly a white wine. And it captures the whiteness. So Pinot Noir is kind of a unique grape in that it has both red wine characteristics and white wine characteristics in given years. In cooler years, in actual fact, Pinot Noir naturally has more white wine characteristics. And by taking the approach that I take, which is to get fully mature red Pinot Noir, we go directly to press and we take about half the juice. I'm able to capture the quote-unquote whiteness of Pinot Noir in this offering and it still shows a little bit red fruit characteristics as well. But if you were to taste this wine in a dark glass, I would venture to say that half the people would think that it's a red wine. Yeah, I forced myself to close my eyes when I tasted it. And, you know, as a fellow maverick, I'm so excited about the idea. I can't wait to go home and start doing this. The idea of putting a white wine at the end, a wine that's as robust and as powerful as that wine is, because that wine is not a, this is not a sissy wine. Yeah, not at all. I saw most of the pretender directly from the winery, and it's mostly based on just people's response. They're blown away by it. And it's truly a wine that most people have not experienced anything quite like it. And so it's a symphony in your mouth. It's amazing, you know, how complex, how dramatically different it is, even than my Chardonnay. So those two wines, which are the final two in a typical tasting at our facility, they're so different from each other. Aaron, any thoughts on that wine? Because I know you actually uttered a word I can't put on the radio. <laughs> actually, a couple words. I can't even speak them now because you were so enthralled by this wine. It was amazing. And yeah. I have to be tame with myself now. But yeah, there's this lovely concentration that it has. And you're looking at it and it's white and it's chilled and you're expecting just, you know, something lovely and refreshing and whatever. But no, it has body. It has this beautiful, I mean, if you ever go to Home Depot and you buy those white strawberries that have the white skin, but they taste like what, strawberries. Home Depot for strawberries? I don't normally Garden buy center. I, I, oh, oh, you mean, oh, to plant. To plant, yeah. Oh, oh I yeah. thought you were going Not to, to the, the, no, the, no, the, no. the fruit department of Home <laughs> no, Depot. No, 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 so to plant. Did you get the same thought? Yeah, okay. Just any garden center, any any place like that where you can buy those strawberries that are white skinned. Yeah, exactly. But those red seeds, it has that like kind they of surprise you, yeah. bright fruitiness to it that's just really, really beautiful. And it's bone dry, so it's snappy, it's really crisp, and honestly would hold up to... Got any dish. I mean, you name it. It's the most versatile from a food pairing standpoint of any of the offerings that I put out. And in that regard, it continues to fascinate me. Well, guys, I'm so sorry to say this, but this is the end of the road for this interview because we got to get down the road. But I really, really appreciate it. Tony, this has been so much fun to be here. We've been here for hours, by the way. <laughs> we just, before we went on the air, we were just playing and drinking all kinds of wonderful things from Panther Creek, from Child's Play, from Tendril Wine Cellars. It's been a absolutely breathtaking, delicious experience that I will never forget. Well, and I have to buy something now. The most consistently perfect winemaking I've experienced in a long, long time. I can't say, you know, I mean, I've had wonderful experiences, but this is among the best. And I really appreciate it. And if somebody wanted to buy the wines, let's start with Panther Creek. You could go online, right? Absolutely. So where um, would you go for that? Online, panthercreek.com. There's a fantastic little tasting room in the town of Dundee. If you're in the area, come out and visit. I mean, love seeing guests. And Panther Creek is great because the tasting room has regular okay. hours a person could go and taste and purchase. And then for Tendril and Child's Play, we're open by appointment. Both of the brands are under tendrilwines.com. But give us a call. We love having guests, have people come out and uh, You don't and get visit. too 
many people out in these parts. <laughs> Is that a banjo I hear in the background? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know what? We're not done with Grape Encounters. We've got a little bit more, but we are going to depart Tendril Wine Cellars for the moment, and we shall be right back with you in a couple of minutes. So stay right there. This special Grape Encounters visit to the Willamette Valley will continue in a couple of minutes. So don't go anywhere. Grape Encounters with David Wilson continues, broadcasting from Idyllic Atascadero, centrally located in the Central Coast wine country of San Luis Obispo County, California. Back again with Grape Encounters Radio, and I want to do something to wrap up the show that I don't do as often as I probably should. You know, I'm really privileged to be able to travel the world and go to some amazing wine countries. And in those amazing wine countries are some really tremendous accommodations that are not like the hotels that you go to when you visit the big city. There are just so many unique properties, and there are a few that I really wanted to mention. They just are standouts, and I would be remiss in not telling you about them. Now, about a year ago, I was judging the Sunset Magazine International Wine Competition, and we were up in Sonoma, but on the way back, I went through the town of Berkeley, and I found myself wandering up in the foothills. All of a sudden, I came upon this hotel. It's called the Fairmont Claremont. It's this very old stately building that you would expect to find someplace on the East Coast, something like the Vanderbilt Mansion, just spectacular white building on the hillside. I said to myself, I want to stay there someday. Well, lo and behold, when I was asked to judge this year's Sunset International Wine Competition, we were told that we would not only be staying at the Fairmont Claremont, but that the competition would take place there as well. I can't get into too many details here because I don't have a lot of time, but I'll simply tell you that if you want to go to a purely magnificent place, go to Berkeley, stay at the Fairmont Claremont, and check out the urban wine trail next door in Oakland and so many of the other really great wine bars and tasting rooms in that area, and then wander on up to the Napa Valley and to Sonoma and spend a couple of days up there as well. This is a really top-notch hotel and maybe one of the best recommendations I could ever give you. Now, speaking of wandering up to Napa and Sonoma, on uh, one of my latest trips to the Napa Valley, I was invited to stay at the Cottage Grove Inn in Calistoga. If you don't know Calistoga, it's this old western town that is known not only for its great wines, but also for its terrific mud baths. Of course, the word terrific is subjective because if you can handle the smell of the mud bath, then you'll really appreciate how good you'll feel when you get out of it. Well, very near the mud baths in Calistoga is a place called the Cottage Grove Inn. This was a little complex. It had several cottages in it. It was a self-contained area that was just absolutely beautiful, like a little neighborhood more than like a hotel. And each person has their own cottage. My cottage was simply unbelievable, with a private porch with rocking chairs, wood-burning fireplaces, a jacuzzi tub for two. They have things like in-room 
balloon picnic baskets if you want to go on a wine country picnic, complimentary bicycles. They even use complimentary L'Occitane amenities, which are, I think, the finest soaps and shampoos that you will ever use. As far as other amenities there, they have freshly prepared full breakfast, which includes things like frittatas, fried potatoes, fried egg bagel sandwiches, homemade waffles, fruit smoothies, and espresso. They have evening wine pairings. I mean, it just goes on and on. The amenities in the room alone are very, very extensive, and the place is not very, very expensive. It's the Cottage Grove Inn in Calistoga, California. I give this like about 50 thumbs up. It is so comfortable, so beautiful, so quaint, so engaging, so inviting. You never, ever want to leave. Now, of course, uh, we've been talking for the past few weeks about my trip up to Oregon, and Oregon has some really, really cool places that you can stay at. When I go to wine country, I don't want to stay at the big hotel. I want to stay at someplace very special and different. And there are two standout accommodations that I want to mention. The first one is Yamville Flat in Newburgh, Oregon. And this is a newly renovated historical flat in the downtown part of Newburgh. Now, Newburgh is just this small, quaint little town. And this flat, you wouldn't even know existed unless somebody told you about it. You walk through a very, very unobtrusive doorway that doesn't have much in the way of markings on it. You got to kind of find it. But when you go upstairs and you turn and walk down the hallway to your suite, mine was suite number one, you just can't imagine that this is where you're going to stay the night. The accommodations were newly renovated. The kitchen was this small conveniency kitchen that you would probably trade for your own kitchen at home. Just absolutely beautiful, really beautifully decorated suite, wonderful bathroom with a huge walk-in shower, a bed that I just didn't want to get out of because it was so incredibly comfortable, nice workspace, comfortable chairs, perfect artwork, you know, just everything that you can imagine that you would want when you really want to relax. Again, it's Yamville Flats, Newburgh, Oregon. Go online. You'll find them on VRBO and check out some photographs of this place. I'll post some of the photographs online as well because I'm telling you, this is an A-plus property. And I also wanted to mention that just across from the property, there's a wine shop that is combined with a toy store. I know that sounds a little odd, called Social Goods, a Newburgh family market. And I spent some time talking to the founder and owner there, Robin Sickens, and she had just won the award for best selection of rosé wines by, I believe it was the Wall Street Journal, and she deserves a lot of accolades. This is an amazing place. You drink your wine and beer downstairs, and your kids can be upstairs playing in the toy store. What a really, really neat place. Finally, I want to point out the historic McMinnville Bank building in downtown McMinnville, the heart of Oregon's wine country. McMinnville is such a a cute town. Just so adorable with lots and lots of great restaurant choices, friendly people, great wine tasting rooms, everything you could ever want out of wine country. But I'll tell you what, the room that I stayed in on the second floor of this old renovated bank building was to die for. It took you back to another place and another time. It kind of reminded me of, you know, maybe the roaring 20s or the magnificent 40s. Everything was antique but 
comfortable, really amazing, stylish decorations. Everything that you looked at was just different than anything that you'd ever seen before. Again, a really cute efficiency kitchen like the Yamville. I was greeted with a bottle of wine that had their own Yamville label. They had delicious salted caramel chocolates. They had coffee that was also in their own packaging. In fact, everything in this hotel, which only has a few rooms, was branded to the property. The attention to detail, literally second to none. And of course, the great big flat screen TV to kick back on your super comfortable sofa and just relax in style after a big day of wine tasting. Again, it was just plush with amenities. I couldn't give it a higher recommendation. Maybe there was something there that wasn't quite right, but darned if I could find it. You can see pictures of all of these places at GrapeEncounters.com. You know, when you go to wine country, don't ruin it by staying at some place that reminds you of home. You want to get away from home and get into another time, another place, and another world that we call wine country. That's going to do it for Grape Encounters today. We will see you next week. You never know what part of the country or the world the Grape Encounters microphones will take you to. Don't miss a single experience. Your Grape Encounter isn't over. We're just taking a breather until next week's edition. 